Welcome to Walter Redgood's Journal. With me in the studio today is Dr. Donald Wright. He's a retired professor from the State University of New York at Cortland, and he now lives in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're going to talk about a topic to which he devoted most of his professional career, and that is the Atlantic slave trade. Don, welcome to the journal. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Let's talk a little bit about you, where you grew up, and how you ended up in South Carolina. Oh, uh, how long do you have? Well, we've got, we've got an hour, <laughs> so let's get started. I grew up in eastern Indiana, a small-town guy. Uh, my dad was a basketball coach and my mother a, a junior high school teacher. And uh, I went to DePaul University in Indiana. I was a, an indifferent student. Is that in Brown County? No, um, uh, Brown County is next to uh, Monroe County, where Bloomington, where Indiana University is. Uh, DePaul's about an hour northwest. Okay. Um, I went there because I wanted to be cool, and I, you know, they, I thought it was a cool place, and my undergraduate record showed that. I suspect. <laughs> uh, and then I went to graduate school at Indiana University, uh, interrupted by four years in the Air Force after I got a master's degree. But I came back, got a nice fellowship to go to Africa and study. And then there were, there were like no jobs, Dr. Edgar, in 1976 when I finished my degree. Uh, but one popped up at uh, SUNY Cortland, as they called it. They wanted someone to do both African and African-American history. Uh, they, they, it's clear they wanted an African-American uh, and they weren't having any luck. And I, I got the job and thought I'd be there a year or two, and then Harvard would be calling. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the phone's still silent. Uh, I taught there uh, 31 years. In 1975, I applied for the Mark Clark uh, Distinguished Visiting Chair of History at the Citadel. And uh, they had never had African history, and so they hired me for a year. Uh, my wife Doris and I uh, lived in Charleston. Uh, while we were there, a colleague of mine, uh, Doug Edgerton, came to visit, and we drove down to Beaufort. He wanted to see uh, some of the history around here, and we, we liked Beaufort, and we found, as I got back to Cortland, we kept finding excuses to come back to Beaufort. And I retired in 2007, but in 2014, we bought a house and... Um, Moved in. All right. What part of New York is Cortland? Is that what Fing part, part? Finger Lakes, right in the right in the very center, south of Syracuse, and about a half an hour from Ithaca. So it's cold. Uh, that's another reason why we're here. <laughs> uh, Ten feet of snow a year on average, and it's very it's very cold. When I was young, I'd like to cross country ski and play touch football in the snow. That, that got old. All right. When you were in Indiana and working your dissertation, how did you end up focusing on Gambia or the area that would become Gambia? I, uh, that's a good question. I decided on Africa, not for impressive reasons, when I went to graduate school, and I knew nothing, nothing about it. My advisor, uh, George Brooks, um, had it been much of anyone else, they would have tossed me out in the hall when I said, I don't even know where all the countries are. Uh, George handed me a map and said, okay, here's where you start. And I applied myself pretty well, and so I followed his lead, and he had studied the west coast of Africa. And when I got to be inter got interested in uh, a topic for a dissertation, it was a time when oral history, you know, authentic African history, uh, we thought we could get that by having Africans tell us what they remembered. And Gambia was a place, it was an English colony, and I had studied some African language that I thought would be useful there. It wasn't. Dr. Brooks uh, directed me toward the Gambia, and I went there and spent eight months collecting oral history. So, so you were there in, in Gambia? Oh, yes. Eight months and two in Senegal, which surrounds Gambia. Well, and of course, in terms of the African slave trade, particularly with South Carolina, uh, as we know from looking at the records of Henry Lawrence and other uh, people who dealt in, in the slave trade, Gambians were much sought after in South Carolina. 
Yes, uh, you know, because enslaved men and women came from the Gambia, I uh, didn't mean necessarily that that was their original home. And I, 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 by some of the time when the slave trade was really pouring into uh, South Carolina, uh, there were bomber wars going on in what's now Mali, and a lot of those uh, captives were coming toward ports on the West Coast. And so, so just because they they were transported from Gambia did not necessarily mean they were Gambians. Indeed, I could probably name uh, half a dozen uh, what we consider ethnic groups today that ended up enslaved and coming out of the Gambia. Well, your nearby neighbor in Beaufort, Professor Dan Littlefield, has identified 25 or 26 uh, West African ethnicities in colonial South Carolina. You know what? I. We could talk a long time about what African ethnicity is because I, they didn't always have the same idea of who they were as Europeans did who, or, or Americans who were there uh, dealing with them. And so uh, the whole idea that uh, Africans traded their brothers and sisters outside is, uh, is not correct. They traded their enemies. <laughs> and uh, sometimes they were very, their, their identity was a very small group of people, and other people were their enemies, and they fought as much as Europeans did. And well, over the course of your time, you've, you've published a number of books, and one, of course, deals with uh, the globalization of the area that became Gambia. That was, that was your, your area of, of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also reviewed books, and I, I found one book review that you did of, and it was of, of Herbert Klein's book on the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, your first sentence, you said, for studies of the Atlantic slave trade, there is a B.C. and an A.D. B.C. means before Curtin, before Philip D. Curtin's The Atlantic Slave Trade, published in 1969. I was still in graduate school. I remember when that, you know, that following on the heels of Peter Wood's Black Majority was incredible. Yes. Um, And then A.D. refers to after the data that people were able to get more and more information. You say that Klein pretty much destroyed most of the myths about the African slave trade. And I thought we might talk about what some of those myths are. So I'm just going to toss that softball to you and let you let you take off. It's a, it, it's a softball. I hope I can preface this by saying we all recognize and agree of the immorality of uh, capturing a human being and selling him off and keeping him or her enslaved. Of course. And, and so that underlies just about everything I'm, I'm going to say. But one of the big myths that I've encountered was one that I think it was helped. It was helped along by Alex Haley and Roots, uh, which, which incidentally Alex Haley identified his African ancestor in the very small area where I studied, and I had interviewed people who had also talked to Alex Haley. So there's that <laughs> that's come up repeatedly. But um, one of the great myths was that uh, foreigners came to African shores uh, over three and a half centuries and just stole people. And, and of course, that degrades Africans to think they just waited around until someone was coming to, uh, uh, to come along and pick them up. Instead, that the Atlantic slave trade was a massive business and uh, it was an immoral business as we see it, uh, but it was a, it was something where Europeans were were looking for the best laborers they could find in great availability without paying too much money, and Africans were looking for certain products uh, that weren't too expensive, that they had something to exchange for those products, and, and so this exchange worked like exchanges work forever, and Europeans knew that they had to. Bring Bring to Africa what Africans wanted, and Africans in turn supplied products Europeans wanted, and some of that was was gold and uh, beeswax and uh, you know a bunch of hides, uh, but certainly human beings became the the, the biggest one. And uh, one one historian I respected said that this was the Atlantic slave trade. And as Europeans saw it, but to Africans, it was kind of the Atlantic cloth and iron trade. As, as undergraduates, and we were undergraduates at the same time in, in history courses with colonial America, there was the triangular trade where cheap goods, uh, trinkets, 
you know, like buying Manhattan for $24 worth of beads. Indeed. Trinkets were shipped to Africa, uh, traded for human beings to South Carolina, Virginia, wherever, and then the product, rice, tobacco, were shipped back to England. It was a triangular trade. And Klein said, and you underscored it, that was a myth. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, you know, I guarantee you, in listeners, uh, a lot of whom are our age cohort, they all learned about the Afri- I mean, the triangular trade. So let's prick that balloon. Gladly. Philip Curtin referred to it as the Guga myth that Europeans brought these trinkets and uh, duped uh, kind of hapless Africans into trading away the heart of their uh, manpower. And, uh, and as, I, as I mentioned, uh, that was not the case at all, uh, that Europeans sometimes had to struggle and hustle to get what Africans wanted. And, uh, and part of that was, some of that was cloth, and they didn't just want any cloth. Uh, they eventually wanted cloth that the Europeans had to get from India and, and import there. Uh, iron bars were a big element. And, and, and later on, weapons of various kinds were, became important, important products. And the, the neatness of the, the ships coming from Europe down to Africa over to the Americas and then back to, to Europe, uh, it, it makes it a bit of a myth because those ships were going all over to get various products and they had to peck around here and there to get water and food and, and then come to the Americas and, uh, and hope they could get some product that, they were, they were, that was in demand back in, back in Europe. And, and ships that were, were, de- were destined to be slavers or slave ships uh, were not – see, that's the idea. It was the same ship involved in all th- – uh, Yes, Yes, th- th- those ships didn't always, uh, you know, you, you didn't carry human beings quite the same way you loaded sugarcane. And, and so it's often different different ships, di- different masters. And even, uh, you know, as I've you know, looked a little bit into the port of South Carolina, you know, someone like Henry Lawrence had his hand in all kinds of different operations and there was credit involved and uh, uh, it, was a, it was a huge business. It was just a, a centuries-long uh, business enterprise. Well, when we, we talk about the AD or after data, you know that we now have information on 27,000 Atlantic slaving voyages. 27,000. And... You would argue that there are 27,000 stories. Now there are 36,000. That was an older review. Uh, uh, and, and what Curtin did, you know, back when I was in, uh, an undergraduate, they were saying, oh, there might have been 15, 20 million Africans transported across. We'll never know. Uh, we, we don't have good records. Well, Curtin, who started out studying Caribbean history, uh, said, well, there are records, and he wrote his first book in 1969 where he estimated using records he had, and, and he greatly lowered the number uh, down to like like uh, 10,000 or around there someplace, and there was a great outcry because people, the historians had long estimated loosely that there might be more than twice that many. Curtin suffered some from that, but what followed on was an effort to find the records. And now uh, you're likely to know there's a there's a database. There's a transatlantic slave trade database. You can go online in in five seconds from now uh, to um, slavevoyages.org and find the records of 36,000 slave voyages, which is about 95% of what they think is the total. So are, are those the legitimate voyages where you would keep import records and it includes things like the the Wanderer and the Clotilde, uh, two illegal slave importations that happened just on the eve of the Civil War? Those were, those were of course, after slavery was illegal, and those things are very small in number. But people who uh, traded slaves across the Atlantic before 1808 uh, didn't have to hide anything. And they, they were, it was a business, and they kept business records. And so you knew how many. You didn't know the individual's names 
by and large. Uh, you knew how many were loaded where. Boy, I, you know, I'm talking about humans as a commodity, and that's tough. But uh, you, you, they, they kept commodity records on these people. Don, I think we need to remind our listeners a point in history, and that is under the Constitution as adopted, there could be no interference with the African slave trade until after 1807. And then once that date came, the external African slave trade was banned. There were still illegal runs, uh, voyages, but between the revolution and, and 1808 in Charleston, tens of thousands of enslaved persons were brought uh, primarily to Gadsden's Wharf. They were. So when you say 36,000 slave voyages, is that just to the United States or is that to... No, that's that's the total for uh, you know Bra Brazil, the West Indies, and so forth. I did, I did look up uh, where you know the the slave trade database lumps areas together. So they talk about um, uh, the Carolinas and Georgia as one of the areas in the America, but of of the whole total that came across the ocean, only four percent or so of those enslaved people came to what became the United States very small part of this massive, massive operation. And uh, when I say number of these disembarked in the Carolinas and Georgia, 252,000 out of uh, uh, 12 and a half million. And so what's that 1% or so? But uh, approximately 200,000 got off the slave vessel on Sullivan's Island for a quarantine. And then, you, as you say, went to Gaston Wharf. And uh, that was about 43% uh, of all the enslaved people that came to mainland North America. Well, and Peter Wood and others have referred to Sullivan's Island as the Ellis Island of, In, for the African-American diaspora. Indeed. It's, it's emotional to stand there near Fort Monroe, I think it is, and they have a small sign about that. Uh, but there was a, it's, it's Fort Moultrie. Fort Moultrie. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, That's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a Hoosier. Um, uh, but it's it's emotional to stand there and recognize that you know a hundred thousand human beings got off a ship from Africa, not knowing where they were, and were put in a pest house for ten days in case they brought any, any diseases with them before they took them into Charleston for the sale. Don, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Don Wright about the African slave trade. All right, Don, a few more things about the myths of the slave trade, um, and then, we, then we'll move on. I want to explore the Gambian story with you. That's, that was <laughs> fascinating to okay. me. It's been pointed out that the, the Portuguese who were considered the worst dirty traders uh, had the lowest mortality rate on their voyages. <laughs> I mean, it's... It, well, I mean, p part of that is because the Portuguese had to do with trade winds and things like that. The Portuguese uh, took more uh, enslaved Africans to Brazil. It wasn't nearly so, so far. And some of the English traders... Uh, uh, they had a really long trip to get to Charleston, uh, and and length of voyage has to do with mortality rates. You know, we've already said this was an immoral trade, but it was also a commodity trade, so they would report their losses. Uh, and so that's how you can say, well, the Portuguese had a lower mortality rate than did the English coming to the Caribbean or certainly to the mainland of North America. Indeed. And we talk about these humans with statistics and, uh, you know, over the overall slave trade, a 14.4% mortality rate. Individuals who were probably at the healthiest point in their lives, you know, uh, from adolescence to uh, mid-20s, and 14 out of every 100 of them who crossed the Atlantic died on the voyage. It was just a horrible circumstance for those who were enslaved. Yes. All right. Any of the myths you want to talk about before we, we zoom in on your, your Gambian? You know, it's one thing I guess I do want to talk about is that it's really hard to generalize about how the slave trade operated in Africa because it operated over you know, 3,000 miles of coastline in over 300 years. And so it, it, it changed. It differed 
uh, from time to time. So uh, in the Gambia River, it might operate differently in 1700 than it did in 1800, depending on all kinds of circumstances. And, it, and, and that differed from how it occurred on the Gold Coast or in, in Angola after that. It's really hard to generalize about this. It was a well, big operation. Well, and, and I think, sadly, over, over time, people did generalized from the triangular trade, oh. and and they would say, well, this is the Middle Passage. Well, as you now said, there were 36,000 Middle Passages. Let's go to Gambia now. You you spent six months there when you were researching as a graduate student, and you're really talking about 16th, 17th century Gambia, the kingdoms that were there? Uh, yes. The, uh, the kingdom that I studied and eventually wrote a, a book about as a a place in terms of land, perhaps the size of uh, a South Carolina county. Um, their, uh, land wasn't important to Africans as people were, and they didn't always designate their boundaries carefully, but it was about the size of Beaufort County or oh. something like that. And so I studied that, and it, it found its origins probably as a political unit back in the Early, what's in the early 1500s, something like that. What was the name of the kingdom? Niumi, N-I-U-M-I with a kind of a, a Spanish N-Y, uh, Niumi. Mm -hmm. oh. So when Henry Lawrence would talk about Gambia, it was referring to someone from this kingdom or is that's a different ethnicity? Uh, up and up. Through the navigable part of the Gambia, which is about a couple hundred miles, there were probably a dozen of similar kingdoms. Uh, this one just happened to be the one at the mouth of the river where ships had to stop and uh, pay a toll and uh, re respect the king <laughs> before they traded anywhere else. And, uh, but there were a number of others, and, and so uh, people who were enslaved probably didn't come from this kingdom because they didn't exchange themselves. They exchanged other people. And, and so the, the, the people who were sold in this kingdom came from maybe an area of three, 400 miles distant and were brought in in what they called slave coffles. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, describe the kingdom for us. People living in the low country would probably feel right at home there. It's uh, flat as a pancake. Uh, it has about maybe 60, 70 miles of coastline. It's almost all the Gambia River estuary. The Gambia is a big, big river, five miles across where it empties into the Atlantic. Wow, okay. And then you, 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 and it's mangrove borders along the river. Uh, you come inland, uh, you know, three, four hundred yards, and it uh, you get away from the, the the marshes and the swamps, and then it's uh, it's rolling countryside, trees here and there, and grasses and uh, African savannas. Right, talk about what the kingdom looked like in the colonial period, and we're talking basically the 17th, 18th centuries. There were probably uh, three or four good-sized villages. What do, what do I mean by that? Not good-sized in our terms, but several hundred people. There were three royal villages because the rulership exchanged among different families, uh, uh, seven of them living in, I think, three villages. Uh, maybe four. They they exchanged rulership because rulership was a commitment. You needed resources uh, to protect the people, and uh, and you you garnished those resources and shared them with others. And if you were wealthy, had horses and, and swordsmen and stuff to protect others, uh, you got a share of rule. And so uh, the kingship uh, alternated from one place to another, uh, and their villages were uh, pretty much thriving. There, were a, there was a port on the Gambia River called Jufere, again, where Alex Haley believed his ancestor lived. Uh, that was where the ships stopped to, to deal with, uh, with Africans in the transactions. Or in that port, did uh, a European settlement come into existence like in Hong Kong or Singapore? Or was it a, a fortified town? Describe it architecturally, if you if you could. I'll try. 
There were not Europeans living in Jufere because about a mile off in the Gambia River was James Island, a very small island, uh, maybe the size of this building we're in, where the English, since about the 1660s or so, had built a fort and had a small number of, uh, of men and some Africans who did their bidding, pretty much. And they dealt with the people on land from, from James Island. And, and they didn't live on African soil because, man, this was an unhealthy place. Uh, you go there, this was way before they had quinine, and so malaria uh, uh, took away. I first lived in the Africa, in the, in the capital of the Gambia, in an area called Hafdai, uh, because back in the 1820s, they'd stationed some troops there from the West Indies, and half of them died every year. Uh, you couldn't keep Europeans alive too long to do much trouble or much business. And so they're, they're developed, and you, this might be interesting, they're developed an Afro-European population of, you know, Europeans who had come and had relations with African women. Uh, they had offspring, and these offspring tended to know several languages and be kind of brokers in the trade, and they were very valuable to the European shippers who came uh, they could deal with these Afro-Portuguese, uh, and uh, and their, their descendants are still there, by the way. Doris and I went interviewing people, I think, in 2006 and found a guy in a field and talked to him for a while. When we were done, we asked his name, and I think it was Gonzalez or something. He was as African as anyone else. But. All right, so the, the slave traders were on this island in the Gambia River. The Gambian port itself was relatively small. Yes, it was, uh, relatively small, uh, probably in the hundreds of people, as some of those villages still might be. Yeah. So what did the housing look like? you have any idea of the, the housing, the commercial buildings? I, I think I do. They built with mud bricks. Uh, you can still see them, people digging up mud, packing bricks and having them dry. And so they built very solid brick walls that were almost like concrete now, uh, thatched the roofs until they began to build houses in what they called the Portuguese fashion. Originally, they were round with thatched roofs. Then they, in the Portuguese fashion, it was square houses, and they eventually got uh, tin uh, for their roofs. Uh, but I think back during the colonial period, it would have been more round houses, thatched roofs, and a difficult way to live in our eyes right now. You mentioned it was an unhealthy place, particularly for Europeans. For, particularly for Europeans. Africans had lived there uh, forever, it seemed like, and had developed certain levels of immunity to uh, some of these diseases that were endemic to them. And one of the reasons... Maybe the main reason why Africans worked out as the labor for the new world is they had certain immunities to both old world diseases and new world diseases. And so when Europeans came to the Caribbean and tried to round up the natives there, they died from smallpox. Africans didn't die from smallpox. They'd been living in that environment for forever. And, and so they were they lived longer in the Americas than any other labor supply, any other. And so the, and actually Peter Wood first uh, brought to attention that the sickle cell trait was a prophylaxis against malaria. Unless you had double uh, sickle cell, unless you had sickle cell anemia, uh, the sickle cell was a prophylactic to malaria, indeed. Uh, mm -hmm. So, do you speak the language of the area you studied? Uh, no. In graduate school, I, part of my funding was uh, to, to take language, and I studied two African languages, one Jula, spoken in the northern Ivory Coast, and then Bambara, spoken in Mali, and they're both related to Mandinka, which is one of the half dozen languages spoken in the Gambia. But when I went there the first time and greeted someone in Bambara, they started laughing and said, they called me a, a Tilibanka, a person from where the sun rises, an Easterner kind of. <laughs> and I realized right away that if I was going to get something done in my eight months there, I needed to travel with somebody who could interpret for me in both culturally and linguistically. And you also mentioned and reminded us that Gambia was an, had been an English colony. 
saved me. Uh, uh, I mean, it was surrounded by Senegal, a French colony, and I could struggle along in French, but boy, having English, you know, uh, students, uh, if, if a person had gotten out of elementary school, there was always a kid in town who could, uh, who could speak to you. Mm-hmm. Among your books that, of course, is, is right up my alley is African Americans in the Colonial Era, From African Origins Through the Revolution. Let's talk about that for a while. Okay. Funny how I came to write that. I did my work in the Gambia River and wrote my dissertation, published a, a big chunk of it. But I began to realize that the oral traditions I had collected didn't provide me with the kind of evidence I, I thought was valid. And so I began to criticize my own work. And I was effective at it. <laughs> I wrote uh, some articles criticizing my, my own work. Uh, but once I did so, I kind of cut the props out of my carrying on with it. And, and so looking for uh, s- something else to work on and to write, I sent a note off to uh, the famous African-American professor, John Hope Franklin, mm-hmm. who edited a series, uh, an American history series. And I proposed to him, I write a book on the Atlantic slave trade to British North America that I didn't think people understood it. And I thought I could do that. And he wrote back and said, that's a little narrow of a topic for our needs. If you could broaden your book to the entire colonial period, I would entertain a proposal. And so, you know, John Hope Franklin writes this little kid in upstate New York and says, I would entertain your book proposal. Uh, I, 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 I wanted to write a proposal. And so I I worked hard, and I was teaching African-American history, but from other people's work. And so I delved into African-Americans in the colonial era, and I wrote a book about it. All right. Well, your new area, and I think the last time I looked, it's in its fourth edition or fifth edition. So obviously, it's it's still in still in use probably in college and high school classrooms. It, it, it's still in use in some college classrooms. I, I, you know, if royalties are any indication, it's not in wide, widespread use. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's still in, still in use. And the book uh, got some really good reviews, and, and Franklin wrote back and said, would you like to do a book on the early republic period? And so I wrote another book. And, of course, it's this period when tens of thousands of Africans were transported before the closing of the slave trade. Indeed. So there's a, there's a huge influx, maybe, what, 100,000 between the revolution and, and 1808? Uh, just in the Carolinas and Georgia, between 1800 and 1807, 66,000, uh, a great influx uh, after the revolution was over to and, and it was that group then uh, that became the basis for the large numbers of excess laborers uh, in the Carolinas that went into the domestic slave trade off into the Deep South that turned it into the Cotton Kingdom. Uh, by that time, the Virginians were selling off their excess Indeed. labor force to the Carolinas. And again, talking about human mortality, but uh, uh, enslaved Africans lived longer in North America than they lived in the Caribbean or Brazil, which were tropical and were di- more difficult places to live. It wasn't that anybody was nicer to them here. It was it was a healthier place to live, and so they lived longer, not nearly as long as other people, but still they lived longer. And eventually, as you said, in Virginia, they developed an excess uh, population when tobacco wasn't selling as well and they had large numbers of workers. What did they do? Uh, They loaded them up and uh, marched them off into an area where the demand was greater and the price was higher. Well, and of course, once cotton took off in South Carolina, after the revolution, 1790 was the first big cotton crop in South Carolina. And for the next 30 years, it was huge. And the demand for labor, particularly uh, in the upstate South Carolina, that's where the slave traders from Virginia was selling their excess labor was to the upcountry planters. Sure. I, you know, I wish I could be asking you the questions because for me to talk about South Carolina history uh, in front of you is like talking about mm-hmm. physics and with Einstein. So. Well, 
When the slave trade reopened, though, it wasn't just to the South because you you mentioned the Carolinas and Georgia. Slavery in what had been the northern colonies was a little bit iffy, but it still existed. Still existed, indeed. And it kind of uh, petered out. You know, a lot of uh, states tended to abolish slavery uh, once the individual reached age 21 or something like that. And so slavery lingered in New Jersey, say, till the early 1830s or something like that. And, and you know, the... States, uh, New York uh, doesn't have clean hands in, in any of this either. There was a big, there was a big slave market in Manhattan in its time. Yeah. And, and of course, one of the major slave markets was in our nation's capital. Indeed. Don, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal. And I'm talking with Dr. Don Wright about the African slave trade. One of the other books, What to Teach About Africa, a guide for secondary school teachers. What should be taught about Africa? In brief, uh, which is what I guess we have here, uh, things based on evidence, uh, things based on the work of good good historians, uh, rather than to try to make anything uh, more or less than what it is, uh, it, it's an effort uh, to uh, to do evidence-based uh, statements of, uh, of of the past, and and for example, uh, there were some massive empires in the interior of West Africa back when the Trans-Saharan trade uh, was Im- important, and somebody always wants to make those into uh, glorious places. Or, or to minimize what they were, and uh, and and what they were were uh, you know business and you know political economic uh, circumstances that allowed some families to dominate other families, and like anywhere else, you know to to, to recognize African history and that Africans are just the same humans as uh, anyone else, and there were good ones and bad ones and earnest ones and less so. Uh, it, it's an important thing uh, to recognize up front. Be able to teach more uh, about that Africa. little book. So they asked I, me I, and I was asked to do uh, a workshop an anthropologist along. It was a great couple of weeks where we, we said what to teach about Africa, and so I wrote down what we were saying, and that's the result. Okay, we were talking briefly about uh, the end of slavery in the northern states, but that that really had to do with what labor was being used for. Correct. Partly, I, you know, we, we historians don't like to say what if, uh, but I think if 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 slavery was uh, if the economy of northern states was based on slavery, I don't think it would have been a light th- move to uh, to end it there. Uh, I- indeed. And there were some people who had already decided that slavery was immoral and should be done away with. For sure, but I mean, people used captive uh, African Americans in northern cities, especially by the time of the revolution. And here and there, I mean, there were there were laborers here. I, you know, George Washington, when he went to the to take office, uh, went to New York City, and I, I think one of his enslaved uh, African Americans went ahead of him to make arrangements. I mean, they were just it was a it was a condition in the entirety of this country when it came into being, and it ended very gradually in the northern states where there were fewer uh, African-American, enslaved African-Americans, and uh, they weren't as big a part of the economy. Down here, not only in the rice fields of Carolina, eventually the cotton fields of, of the Deep South and the sugar cane fields of Louisiana, and the demand for labor was Enormous. constant. And it, it was constant. As you said, when a new crop came along like cotton, Katie barred the door to people moving um, up country away from the coast and getting land and clearing the land, which was very hard to do. And who, did, who does that? Uh, enslaved people. Uh, and they cleared those fields and started growing cotton. Uh, was it? And then, of course, move further west to the to Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Upper Louisiana, Arkansas, East Texas. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. So I really am curious, and I meant to ask this earlier, but 
How did you get interested in Africa? Dr. Edgar, that's a... That's Please a, call me Walter, Oh, darling. Walter, I'm sorry. Yeah, Walter, that, that, that's a question I've been asked a lot, and I've needed different kinds of answers uh, because when, when there's a, 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 you're applying for a fellowship and they're interviewing you and you get asked that question, it's not impressive to say, well, there was this girl or you know, something to that effect. Uh, my father in the Second World War was a pilot of a B-25, a medium-range bomber, and he flew in North Africa uh, as the Allies chased Rommel back across from Egypt uh, through Tunisia and so forth. He flew 35 missions there. To get there, he didn't just hop on a B-25 in Charleston and fly to Cairo. Uh, he had to go to Florida, to uh, Trinidad, uh, to coastal Brazil, over to uh, Liberia, uh, to the Gold Coast, northern Nigeria, Al Fasher and Sudan, to Khartoum, down the Nile. And he took pictures. And so I grew up with these albums of pictures of Africans that I found fascinating. And when I, I studied history at DePauw, and I loved the Civil War. I, I was reading Bruce Catton's books, and I just thought they were the best. And uh, and I had a woman friend, and, and she said, what are you going to do in your life? And I said, well, I'd like to teach public school. And her parents, her father was a physician, and that didn't stack up well <laughs> with them. And so I said, well, I bet I could then teach in college. And... She had an uncle who was a professor, uh, and uh, I saw him over Christmas vacation, and he said, he said, oh, what do you want to study? And I said, oh, the Civil War, man. And he, and he held up his hands and said, stop. You will never, ever get a job. said, you better find something that's a new field uh, where there aren't lots of professors, uh, where there's going to be some demand. And he said, you know, Africa, Latin America— uh, try one of those, and that's when my father's experience, and I thought, Africa, wow, that's me. I applied to three graduate schools in the Midwest, and they, Dr. Brooks eventually admitted that they accepted me thinking I wanted a Master's of Arts in Teaching, and that was going to be a terminal degree. But it, I went into his office and put my cards on the table and said, I know nothing about Africa, never had a course in it, and he kind of rubbed his temples and... Uh, hesitated, and then he reached behind him and got a blank map and said, well, here's where you start. And I worked hard uh, then. I, I had matured some, and uh, I got a master's degree, and then uh, the Vietnam War was coming along, so I had, I had got, I got a commission in the Air Force. And so, you, so your academic career was interrupted by, by four years in the Air Force? Three years and ten months and four days. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I remember in in my graduate school days, uh, what was taught as African history was the expansion of Europe. That was the way it was described. And so this is the late 60s, and only one or two European colonies have gained independence by the time we're, we're taking this course. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I say, that was the focus, the European expansion. It wasn't really studying Africa. It was. It didn't just go with the, the late colonial period when they carved up the the map, but it did start with the, the earliest. Sure. And it was the slave trade. It was actually trade, period. There was this notion among historians as late as the mid-1950s that Africans didn't really have a history before Europeans got involved. A very famous Oxford historian uh, said something like, Africa before the Europeans came was darkness uh, filled with the wandering gyrations of barbarous tribes over irrelevant portions of the earth, or something like that. And I, when I got along and began studying, I thought, I can do better than this. And that's why I wanted to study African history pre-colonial. <laughs> you know, I wanted to go back as far as I could and see what I could make of it. Well, uh, that that quotation from an English historian is it's not surprising. They they had nothing but contempt for colonials. Actually, uh, they were as contemptuous of white colonials in the United in what became the United States as they were of uh, Asians, Africans, and Caribbean. Sure. Uh, sure. And of course, they were not 
the wonderful colonial rulers that they like to present to the world. Oh, my goodness. I write about that in my African book. Uh, the colonial period was a, was a very difficult part for, uh, for Gambians and for the people I well, knew. expand on that a little bit. The bottom line of British colonialism was, again, uh, business-like. They wanted to balance the budget. Uh, they didn't care what else happened so long as they didn't take English taxpayers' pounds and use them in uh, their colonies in Africa. And, and so uh, they put very little money in health or education. In fact, there's one year around 1920 when the colonial government spent more on a tennis court for visiting businessmen in Bathurst, the capital of the Gambia, than they did on their whole education budget. And so by the time uh, the 1950s came along and independence was in the wind, Gambia had, uh, there was no high school on the north bank of the Gambia River. And health care uh, was uh, abysmal, almost non-existent. And so Gambians had to climb out of that once they became independent in 1965. Um, and uh, they're, they're still climbing. Still climbing. You want to go back? Oh, yes, I do. But um, uh, the health situation is different. Uh, we, Doris and I were there maybe three years ago or so, but then COVID came along, and I, I'm leery of uh, of going going along the African, the Atlantic coast. So, was your last visit scholarly or just pleasure? Actually, Walter, uh, for a few years, uh, I had been I was being asked to lecture on small ship cruises going along Africa's Atlantic coast and one of them up the Gambia River. And so I think it was probably uh, attached to one of, those, uh, one of those cruises where there were interesting people who wanted to learn about uh, Africa's history and I was there to tell them what I knew. I, I did this sort of thing for uh, from 2008 up until 2016. In fact, we had a, a, a cruise from Lisbon uh, to Cape Town. We were going to go on in, in March when COVID came along, and, uh, and, and we bowed out of it two days before they canceled the whole cruise because COVID was raging by then. What are you doing with your retired life here in Beaufort other than enjoying it? Uh, in, enjoying it for sure. My, my wife Doris and I uh, are, are active physically, mm -hmm. uh, and boy, that's, a, that's great for, I mean, the, the, the Spanish Moss Trail in Beaufort is, uh, would, would draw me if nothing else did. Uh, so we were very active. Um, I've given some talks to the Lifelong Learning Institute at USC Beaufort. We, Doris and I both write, and she's written a novel and uh, won some short story uh, prizes, and I tinker. I have all kinds of ideas of things I think about writing. Uh, I've, I've fooled with a novel myself. We both spend a lot of time at the computer trying to write one thing or okay. another. I understand. Uh, <laughs> I won't reveal your age, but I have a, an idea of what it is. But it, you've got at least eight books, and not to mention the articles under your belt. Uh, there's no there's no tenure retention committee that you have to produce something for, uh, <laughs> and unless you really are hot for it, you're just going to keep walking the Spanish Trail. I, I I I enjoy the Spanish Trail, and indeed, I I reached out here because I thought it would be fun uh, talking to you, meeting you, and being part of this very interesting program. Uh, that's the kind of things I am enjoying. All right. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Um, well, I, appropriate to South Carolina, I think we're 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 very happy, very happy to be here, and uh, I'm I'm really impressed with the the history that's being taught around me. There are, are wonderful historians at the University of South Carolina at Beaufort, and every time I, I look around, uh, there, there, there's more of that history being taught at the University in Columbia and elsewhere. And, and so um, uh, it's, it's a nice place to, uh, to spend my retirement years. I like it. Well, well, Dr. Donald Wright, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Walter. 
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you learned something from today's journal. To say, as I usually would do, enjoy uh, is not appropriate. The Atlantic slave trade was a horrible, horrible, immoral business. Human beings were commodities. The slave trade was a grim part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.